I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's up, everybody? There's something that you need to know about. And it's actually not crypto. But investors, they've been diversifying into this for thousands of years. Currently, this asset class is valued at over $6 trillion dollars. It's almost four times larger than the market cap of everyday cryptocurrency combined. The problem is that it's only been limited to the wealthiest of the wealthy. But now, thanks to a recent change in the legal code, it's finally available to everyday investors. And there's one startup that's given you access to this exclusive world. Masterworks makes multi-million dollar paintings as investable as Bitcoin. For example, instead of paying $20 million for a Banksy outright, you can invest in a fraction of one. They're always adding new multi-million dollar paintings to their platform. And offerings have sold out quickly in the past, so I wouldn't wait around. If this sounds cool to you, and if the volatility of the crypto space gives you the jitters, you can skip the Masterworks waitlist with my link, masterworks.io slash decrypt. That's masterworks.io slash decrypt. I'll see you there. Make sure to see the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. From the Crypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, me. I got interviewed by Jay Gould, and I'm going to share that with you. That's coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. A little different today. We're going to have a interview with myself and Jay Gould on the show. Uh, I was on his show. It's a YouTube channel. Please check out his YouTube. Subscribe. Link is in the show notes. And it's actually a lot better to watch. But if you're listening to it, here, listen to it. Why am I sharing this with you? We talk about crypto. We talk about Bitcoin. We talk about the space. We talk about myself, how I got into crypto. And it's, well, you listen to me every day, daily news. Maybe you get to know me a little bit better. So I'm going to share this with you today. And that's our show. We're not going to do coin of the day, but we are going to get into those crypto prices. And I'm recording this at 11.15 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin, $42,571. Pretty much even from yesterday. Ethereum dropped below the $3,000 mark. It was like down to 28, like some odd change yesterday. It's back up a little bit, $2,951. Down 1.7 in 24. Tether's in the number three spot. Cardano, $2.16, up 2%. And Binance Coin, pretty much even from yesterday at $3.65. Rounding off the top 10, we have XRP, Solana, USDC, Polkadot, and Dogecoin. Nobody has really clocked some good gains in the past 24. Total market cap, we're at $1.888 trillion, a BTC dominance of 42.4%, and an F dominance of 18.4%. And like I said in the beginning of the show, I got interviewed by Jay Gould. Link is in the show notes for his YouTube channel. Check him out. Subscribe. There's a lot of other good interviews on his channel. I wanted to share mine with you. We talk about crypto quite a bit, different aspects of crypto, different reasons why I'm in crypto, a lot of stories about myself, and I wanted to share that with you. 
Don't forget to check out his channel. And don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, leave us a comment. And you can also email me, MatthewAaron at Decrypt.co. And if this inspires you, this interview inspires you, please donate to my campaign, DiemerForCongress.com. That's D-I-E-M-E-R for Congress.com. I will see you after the show. I'm a high school dropout. I'm fluent in Chinese. I went to university, got my bachelor's degree. I got a full scholarship for my MBA. I got a scholarship to study Chinese. You wonder why I wanted to drop out? Because I wanted to be a chef. I just wanted to go and work and just try to learn a skill and a trade. And everybody told me I will never be amount to anything because I didn't graduate. I didn't go to school. I'm not going to college. And what a crappy thing to do to somebody to say that if you're not going to amount to anything, if you just work. Bullshit. Go out and do it. Go out and be an electrician, a carpenter, or be a small business entrepreneur, or be a hairdresser. I don't care what you do. Open a gym. Show them dignity and respect because they're part of your community. They're working hard as well, and they have a skill that they could teach you. I want to make sure I'm going to Congress to make sure that you know we respect the trades, respect uh, the dignity of, of work and hard work and entrepreneurship here in the, in the U.S., and put the trades back into high school. Financial ed- education. Make sure that people can understand how to manage their, their, their money so, so they don't either not go into debt or leverage their capital. And, and, and so on and so forth so they can help build wealth you know throughout time today i'm sitting with matthew diener who is running for congress in ohio and is a bitcoin matthew was born and raised in cleveland ohio by his mother and adopted father he was raised in a blue collar environment with a lot of adversity during his childhood matt's father struggled while working blue collar jobs and also working towards earning his degree from Cleveland State University so he could provide more for his family. Matthew worked as a dishwasher and worked his way all the way up to running restaurant kitchens before going back to college himself. Matthew is also the host of Decrypt, where he interviews popular people involved in the crypto space. Matthew is a breath of fresh air to see a young person running for Congress that understands and appreciates technology, small business, entrepreneurship, and the struggle of the everyday blue-collar American. I really enjoyed this episode, and I think you will too. Matthew is a proponent for Bitcoin and the blockchain, and we need more people like this in Congress that understand technology, small business, and Bitcoin. So with that said, let's dive in with Matthew Diemer. Matthew, welcome to the show. My man, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm, I love having you on. I love younger people that are trying to run for Congress. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we get into that, I got to know who are in your top five. If you remember, T-Mobile used to have the five people that you'd have your five in your world. Other than your family, tell me the five people that you're surrounding yourself with the most today, because as they say, you are the average of the five people you surround yourself the most with. Wow, man, that's a question that I was not expecting. Um, obviously, my girlfriend, um, who's not my family, but she, but yeah, uh, my girlfriend, uh, Dr. Sarah Sweeney, um, I surround her with her and her family. Her family is just amazing. She has three sisters. Uh, you know, her father is a retired doctor. Her mother is a uh, uh, works in a school, and you know, I, I surround myself with their family, and they have, and their those sisters married uh, great husbands. And to be honest with you, they're a great support. They're socially um, active. They're politically active. They are both all working in either the medical field or in uh, in politics. Um, they are willing to jump in and help anybody out at any time like for example they had inherited a house uh from their grandfather when he passed a couple years ago and so far the mother has already had two families that had you know their house burned down live there you know and it's like hey offer my house to have you know you know offer it up to people that need it um and they're willing to donate they're willing to you know you know put the work in and so when it comes to people i surround myself with it's people who aren't afraid to do the work aren't afraid to step up aren't afraid to help out and aren't afraid to uh you know just you know do work for things that they believe in 
So Matthew, you're about my age, right? You grew up in the 90s and the late 80s. Um, I got to also ask you, who are your top three, top three favorite rappers of all time? Oh, Biggie, <laughs> Jay-Z, and uh, number, number three rapper. Oh, man, maybe Method Man. I like that. I like that. Biggie's the number one, bro. I love that you have Biggie number Biggie one. Biggie number one, Jay Z number two, and then it just goes on. Yeah. And then then it starts to get fuzzy. It's like who 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 who's uh, the the next one? But you know, I, I there's a lot of you said growing up, but Joyner Lucas, man, he puts it down, man. Like that's that's a new rapper that is just like he just has some lyrics. He has bars for days. I like that. <laughs> Let's dive into fatherhood. We talked about this before we started the uh, call here. I'd like to discuss your relationship with your stepfather. I read your bio, a little bit about you. I also grew up with a stepfather who raised me. Um, how has that impacted you both professionally and personally growing up? Well, first, I don't want to call him a stepfather. Uh, he is my adopted father. I've known him since I was, uh, he's adopted me when I was one years old. I, I got to go back to a little bit of the story. My, my father, my biological father, came from Nigeria to study in Kent State University. Um, so I am half Nigerian. And after his um, studying, he had to go back because that was what his visa was for. You study in the U.S., and then you go back to Nigeria. He offered my mother to go back, and he, but my father was Muslim. My mother could have been one of many wives. She wasn't feeling that, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, and it, it, so she decided to stay. And during this process, she got to know uh, my dad, my adopted dad. And um, there was a beautiful picture that I, I have that is of both of them, my biological father and my adopted father in the oh, airport with me in the middle, kind of like doing a handoff, but like, I respect you here's this boy and you raise him and uh he my father is my father i don't know anybody else but my father he has uh you know been through the shit of of raising some kids you know uh, especially a boy in the house especially a boy that is you know biracial when he he is a white man uh i have a, a white brother and sister had a had a sister and a white brother a white mother white family white uncle white aunts in white neighborhoods and not to say that that's a thing but it is something to to there is a difference enough to say Hey, I am different, but this guy had to had signed up to deal with it, you know. So he yeah. dealt, dealt with a a teenager that was probably a, a pretty much of an asshole. Um, you know, we had our fights, you know, growing up. He we had, um, you know, he he was my dad, and he never at once said not once do I remember in my whole life him saying, "You're not my son. You're adopted. You owe me anything." Never once. He was always my dad, no matter what kind of crap I put him through, and he was always there. So. I would yeah. not call him my stepdad. I would call him my my father. He is my father. And my mother did, uh, they did divorce. And my mother did re remarry. And so there was never a, a case where he was like, oh, we, we got divorced. You're now not my kid. You're my mom. You're your mother's kid. Never. I still, 42 years later, he's my dad. I have a stepdad. My mother remarried. And uh, he's he's a good guy, too. He's helped me a lot, uh, out as well. And, um, you know, I've just been surrounded by good guys in my life. You know, I, I have a biological dad and, and I have a stepdad. The only reason I call him to him to his face, he's my dad. To people around us in our circle, he's my dad. But to not cause confusion, I say stepdad because my other dad's still in my life. So it's it, it just so people understand. But I will say the term stepdad is a compliment, in my opinion, because a stepdad steps up when your dad steps out. And that's how I always I always viewed it. But anyway. No, man, I love that. <laughs> All right, Matthew, um, I want to talk about healthcare and your position on healthcare. Uh, can you tell us about your son, by the way? Um, sorry to hear about that. Your son lost his life at 14 days old and you were unable to afford an operation that you needed to correct a severe heart condition. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. And, uh, you know, and what, what is your position in general in healthcare? As, as I understand it, it, it didn't happen in the United States, but in general in the United States, I'm sure this has happened to a lot of people. And um, where do you stand on this? 
Uh, so just a little backstory. What happened with my son um, is that uh, he had tr he was born with tricuspid stenosis, meaning that his a valve in his heart was not large enough to get the blood to circulate through his whole body. And so it was just star starving his brain of oxygen. And so um, in China, it's more of like a pay first uh, situation where you need to come up with the money. And you know what? When it comes to little things from stitches to getting your a blood test or blood work, you know, things are cheap, you know, five bucks here, 10 bucks here. And honestly, the system is pretty, pretty affordable. But for this surgery, it was around $40,000. And living in China and Southern China at the time, I, I had not, I didn't have $40,000. I was fresh out of college or I think I was still in doing my degree and I couldn't come up with 40 grand. And not only that is I was asking my, my family for the money and they were going to send it to us. And in, in Beijing or in China, when you open your account as a foreigner, uh, you, you only can use your branch for wire transfer. So you come in and um, your, I asked my mother for money. I think she sent up like $10,000. But it was stuck in limbo um, in my branch in Beijing, which is in northern China, while I was in southern China. And we didn't know that. So we were waiting at the bank, you know, just like if you went to Chase and you went to your account, money's not showing up in your account. But you didn't know, we didn't know that you had to go to the bank where you opened your account to see if the money came. And so that was days and days and we couldn't get the money. And, and it was a big, um, you know, uh, a fiasco, obviously, you know, with the time mounting and time is of, of the essence. We just couldn't get it done. Um, and of course, they wouldn't do the surgery without the money. And that's actually, you know, kind of a pivot of where, where I started learning about Bitcoin and understanding the benefits of Bitcoin is because, look, it, I needed money and I needed to go cross borders at the speed of life. There was things happening mm -hmm. and I needed those funds. And well, the ACH, the bank banking regulations, uh, the the communication between banks in America and banks in China, um, the the you know all, all, whatever you want, whatever the regulations or the rigmarole that was being put through didn't operate in a in an efficient manner. And I, the question was why? Why if I can call my mother or send a text to my mother or acro across seas, I can't just get money when I need it? And why do I have to go through all these checks and balances? And, you know, that's what made me look at Bitcoin. We'll probably talk about that in a little bit. But um, long story short is, you know, after all of this, uh, he was uh, born about 14 days. He stayed a couple days or I want to say maybe three or four in the ICU in Guangzhou in the hospital. And I had to make a, make a choice. And the choice was to either A, continue to wait there and watch his uh, health deteriorate or take him home, which was a, I want to say, I can't remember, it's a long time ago, about a four-hour ride by car back to um, where my uh, where his mother was and, um, you know, allow him to spend the last couple of hours with her. And that's what I did is, you know, I took my flight support and I got a, got a taxi, uh, held him in my arms in the taxi, in the backseat of the taxi for those hours, just hoping that he wouldn't uh, pass before we got to his mother. And we I walked to the door, gave him to his mother. She uh, breastfed him one last time. We put him down to sleep and he didn't wake up. Uh, so it was almost it was almost. I I hate to use the word perfect timing, but I'm really uh, happy that she got to spend the last hours with yeah. him. How does it uh, affect my idea on healthcare? Well, first of all, I the, the healthcare system. I, as I said earlier, my girlfriend's a doctor, and I know how messed up the healthcare system is. I mean, when it comes to the fees and lack of transparency, um, the rigor morale. If you don't have really good health insurance of what you have to do to get your pres prescriptions filled, the backdoor dealings of these insurance companies that are you know changing rates and what they will cover and what they won't cover you know overnight there's sometimes that my girlfriend has a patient that's on insulin but because she was pre prescribing one either one brand or one uh, this or that of some medication or maybe if it's not insulin but other medications um that 
the people will be cut off of their of their prescriptions and nobody would tell them because the the backdoor dealings of the insurance company uh, made a different deal with a different company for the same drug and it's and nobody tells them until they go up to get a refill and it's like oh your payment is now five hundred dollars for the and medicine instead of the copay right and they need yep. it now and so they have to go back and get a re-prescription from her as a doctor and she's just like why is this even happening so my stance on healthcare is one everybody needs to have a family doctor look we were talking offline you go to the gym you know about your body you know about your health you take it very seriously we need everybody should know about what's going on with their body they need to have yeah. uh uh you know, just blood checks. They need to know how they're progressing, what their BMI is. Uh, they need to know, uh, you know, just they, they should have a family doctor from the when they're born until they're older. So they can monitor their health. We should have things that are, you know, hundreds of years old of technology when it comes to x-rays and stitches and setting a bone, you know, those things should not cost anything. They are ancient technologies, a plaster cast. Look, your kid could go to school and make something with plaster. Why does it cost hundreds of dollars to get your bone fixed in the hospital? Um, so I am a very big proponent of having free, basic health care for everybody so they can understand what's going on in their body, understand how to deal with it. Proactive health care is what you sound like you're saying. Proactive health care, yes. So they can understand, understand what they're eating, how they're eating. I am assuming that you use MyFitnessPal app, right, to track your, track your macros. Something like that, but yeah, that's right. Look, uh, brand brand aside, you understand what you're putting in your body. Yeah. You understand how much fat, how much uh, how much uh, you know carbs, how much protein, and you know people don't know, and I didn't know until I started tracking my my uh, calories and my food that a tablespoon of olive oil is 120 calories, and if you're dumping that that on salad, man, you've just blown out your <laughs> calorie intake yeah. for the day. Like yeah. you don't know that a slab of butter to put on your toast is blowing out your calories for the day. You know what people don't also know, Matthew? They don't know that four grams of carbs translates to one tablespoon of sugar. And think about how many carbs Americans are eating. It's crazy. That's a lot of sugar. It's a pre-diabetic issue in this country. Yeah. 100%, man. And so, wait, look, just to go back to and stop my, uh, I get passionate about this, but. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, know what's going on with your health. Basic health care shouldn't cost anything because it's old tech and we have to be proactive and start educating about what we eat, how we and how we um, you know, metabolize it and what we can do in our lives to make sure that we live the best, most healthy lifestyle as possible. Thank you for sharing that. That's a very personal story, obviously. Um, it's probably difficult to, to share in general. I mean, it, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, if you were in America, would, would that have gotten the same same outcome or would it be different here? I'm just curious that it was in China if it was different. I would assume that the the procedure would have costed ten times the price. Um, that he would be alive, but I would be in massive debt, and I would be not in the position that I am right now. And I would just be always uh, slaving away at either in bankruptcy or yeah. in debt. Or so they probably would have done the procedure, but they would have put it on your on your credit essentially. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a good thing, I think. Right? If it would have gotten, if you were in America, obviously you couldn't fly here. You just there was no ability. Once he was there, he was ready to pass, and it had to be done there. That's a shame, man. Um, I really feel for you. All right. So let's move on. Let's go back in life. I want to go all the way back when you were born. I want to talk about your early life growing up, your early years, your childhood. What was the socioeconomic conditions of your childhood? Um, can you tell us about what your parents did for a living and all that kind of stuff? So my dad, uh, he was working in, in, in steel factories, uh, foraging and so on and so forth. Um, he high school degree, uh, three kids by the time he was 24. He just wanted to have a family, uh, very important to him. And my mother was three kids at 20, 22 or 20, 23 years old. 
you know, and we, we struggled, we struggled, you know, it's, it, we were on food stamps. We did, uh, you know, we had the, uh, free lunches in school. We had the boxes of shoes to get some new shoes, you know, and uh, that he would shift through in the, in the school. Um, my mom was on a strict budget. I remember the boxes of food coming to the house from, uh, with government cheese and powdered milk and so on and so forth. Um, so it's like, yo, know, we, we struggled for the first, uh, 10 years, um, uh, while my dad, you know, tried to raise the family and, and so on and so forth. Um, our community was great, though. You know, my, we had a great family. My, my uh, great aunt lived behind us until she passed in, like, I think it was either 85 or 86. And my uncle uh, lived behind me. He was a, a father figure to me as well. Uh, we had great, a great neighborhood in Slavic Village uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. So we knew all of our neighbors. So it was a great, uh, you know, support community structure. But, yeah, I mean, we were all struggling. Uh, and my father went back to uh, university or went to university uh, when he was about 24, 25, finally graduating with his master's degree in um, uh, with an MBA when he was around 30 or 31. And, um, honestly, we just, uh, life started getting better after, after that. Um, we, my father has, my grandfather has a, a family company, which is in the steel business. And after my dad went to university and got his, his master's, he started working for his dad and, um, life got better, but I can't stress to you how, how, um, much that made an impact on me of, of just understanding the, you know, the amount of the, the kind of work, the the kind of pay and, uh, you know, what it does to a family when you're just, you know, really, you know, skimping. But as, but with that said, you know, kids, if you have a happy environment, kids don't know any different. That's what they know. Right. So, you know, as a kid for me growing up, it was it's not like, you know, but I could tell you that there was money stress. There was fights in the house with, between my mom and my dad. There was definitely. And once you get older and you, and you know, back, look back and you go, oh, like it's not you know, free lunches and, and boxes of food showing up your house and food stamps is not the norm, you know? <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know, I bring people on the show that I consider to be docents, as I told you, right. And docents, I redefine the term as people that uh, inspire, influence, and guide others through their actions. Docents are relentless people, the ultimate competitors and high achievers on this planet. Um, they are the most persistent and enduring people. I consider you to be a docent. So I'd like to understand who your docents were other than your parents growing up. Who did you look up to in your personal life as well as the people you didn't personally know that you looked up to? Man, that's a good, that's a good question. Look, uh, my, we were a very religious household growing up. Um, my dad's a pastor as, as right now. Uh, he's moving down to Florida to uh, lead churches down in uh, Southern Florida in the Caribbean. Uh, right now he's in New England um, with, uh, I think, four different congregations over in the Boston, uh, Maine, Vermont area. But um, so a lot of people came from church. Um, I, I don't know... Um, if you would classify them as a docent, like you said, but you know, look, I had one guy take me under his wing and he taught me all about, you know, firearms and, and, and how to use and fire and shoot and safety. And his name was big George. He was a six foot six, 400 pound truck driver. You know, he lived out in rural Ohio. Like, and then you had me, this uh, 10, 11 year old uh, biracial kid just tagging along with him, you know, with, with to gun shows and, and, and <laughs> shoot, shoot, shooting firearms in, in the woods, you know, at, at, at oil barrels. I mean, he was a friend to me and he taught me so much. And then there was another guy whose name was Ralph and he was also from the church and he taught me how to sail, man. He had this, he had a sailboat down in, uh, uh, down on the lake and, you know, he took me out every summer to the point where, you know, I remember the first time I went out there, I didn't know anything about a boat to the, to the point where, you know, four or five years later, you know, I was tying the knots and he, you know, tying the knots, sailing the boat by myself, you know, whatever. And I remember this one time he said, he, I went down there for the weekend to, you know, le learn to sail. He said, take the boat yourself. 
You know, so I was, there's this, you know, 12 year old kid with a 26 uh, foot sailboat wow. out there on the lake by himself, you know, docking it, undocking it all by myself. And it was like only because he trusted me th- and, and he and he saw something in me and he said, go for it. He taught me, you know, so like those people throughout my life, you know, are, are the people who saw something in me for some reason and, you know, put the time and effort into, you know, educate me in one way or the other. Those are the people I've looked up to. I mean, it went through my career when it came to, you know, cooking. You know, there's the chefs that came up and just said, hey, this dishwasher, let's give that guy a chance, you know, and let's teach him how to cook. And then that allowed me to be a kitchen manager and actually make a, a decent wage um, and, and, and be a so-called chef, you know. Um, and then it was just, you know, people like in, in Shanghai, there was people, uh, different instances where they just saw something in me and that allowed me to, uh, you know, advance my career in ways that I couldn't have ever imagined. And so those are the people I, I've looked up to my whole life is the people that saw something in me, took a chance because, you know, of one reason or the other. And then um, one uh, through hard work and determination and, and, you know, the feeling that I don't want to disappoint them. I, I worked hard and, and, and got it done. Let me ask you a question. What is your superpower? What is the one thing that is you consider to be your superpower? Meeting and talking to people, man. Like I don't, I don't look good on paper. I don't look good, uh, you know. <laughs> like if I was writing an email, you're not gonna be like, oh, this, this is the dude that. I, just when I sit down and talk to somebody, and and I hate, I hate you don't have the stuff. pedigree, so, right? You're not a Harvard grad, that kind of crap. You, yeah, you, yeah. You're not gonna. I'm not gonna show them the resume or the thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter or some kind of big, you know, you know, whatever yacht or whatever. You know, it's just like just sit down and talk to me. You're gonna see that I'm a normal dude. Uh, you see that I give a shit about the things that I do. You see that I'm gonna work hard about for the things I do. I'm not gonna bullshit you once you get down in front of somebody i think that's that's my superpower is just to keep it real so on the flip side of that here superman what's your kryptonite my crypto my kryptonite is trying to do everything by paper man you don't get me in front of somebody <laughs> or start talking to somebody they're gonna just blow me off and and i i've always been the underdog man look i i, I did i got a scholarship to study chinese uh full scholarship to study chinese so i'm fluent in chinese um and I was not picked for the scholarship, you know. I, I did everything. I put myself on paper. I wrote my essays. I got my um my uh you know endorsements and so on and so forth. Uh, I had to get straight A's to get this, and so I, I got my I got all, I got I checked all the boxes, and they just said, "Nah, this, you're not the guy." And you know who who was the guy? Uh, you know what happened is I got that scholarship is because somebody dropped out, and I was the next one in line, you know. And so, but when I got, got there, I was the only one that stayed in China. I was the only one that got fluent in Chinese out of the whole program. I was the only one that, you know, excelled in my career there, you know? So, you know, and I kind of, I got out of that program with straight A's, the only one to have the straight A's in, in the program as well. So it's just like, give me the chance. I will work at it and get it done, but I just don't translate well on paper. And that, that's, that is my crypt, my kryptonite is like, most people just look at the sheet of paper instead of looking at the person. Brother, I got to tell you right now, that's me too. Like, I didn't go to any of these Harvard schools or Ivy League. I have no pedigree whatsoever. I come from a blue-collar town, and I like putting myself out there because there's millions and millions of people like me, like you, that are just average people that were, I don't know, we're peasants, right, growing up when you think about it, right? And so, you know, I like to do this show because most of these people, I think it was said before the show, people don't realize 85% of millionaires are self-made, Right. That right today, 85%. Most people think, oh, they've inherited it. There was some kind of privilege and not really. In fact, it's usually the people that end up not doing so well or they grew up with money because they felt privileged growing up and then they go to society and you realize it's a fight. And the people that win in those fights are the people that have nothing, that came from nothing. They're willing to fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I got to ask you a question though, right? Um, I love the fact that you're a young person that's running for Congress because it's filled with a bunch of people that should be on Medicaid and stuff, right? Um, so I like that you have a worldview that's, that really is representative of the people that are actually earning and paying taxes, right? So I love that. 
But I got to ask you, why the hell do you want to be in Congress? Because on the other side of it, as much as I would like to go and make a change, you're putting yourself out there. You're going to get the criticism. You got to get the heat. You're going to deal with all the crap. You got to deal with it. I mean, what made you say, I got to do this? Like there had to be something that was like this one pivotal moment. What is that? Man, there was a lot of pivotal moments, man. And, and I got, I'm going to, I just going to get in my soapbox again and, and, and ramble through it, man. I'm sorry, man. But, but look, man, we have, like you said, there's a lot of old people in Congress. Look, we, we're yeah. trying to make regulation and, and legislation when it comes to um, emerging technology. We're talking about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or blockchain tech. And, you know, we are just seeing, like, even with the infrastructure bill, that they're just making uh, frameworks for these reg regulations or regulations. I'm not even calling them frameworks. Just uh, sweeping regulations that don't make any sense to this. And so, like, we need people to understand this new world that's coming up to get in there and actually start, you know, allowing to or, or helping make frameworks to allow these businesses to to develop and i want to use frameworks not regulations because regulations means i'm regular i'm regulating something and i'm trying to stop something no let's make a framework so people can develop and op operate let's uh, inspire the and, and help the entrepreneur the innovator the creators to go out and build right and that's what we want this is what the beautiful thing about the country is and so that's one reason um there's uh, the other reasons are like, you know, we I've lived abroad. I was, you know, tw um, 15 years in Asia. So 13 years from 2004 to 2017 in China. Uh, I did my master's in Taiwan um, and uh, worked in Hong Kong and Singapore. I've been to almost every country in Asia from from, uh, you know, from Korea to Japan to Thailand to Vietnam to C Cambodia. You know, so I, I've, I've done my travels around there and it is very apparent that we need to do get our manufacturing back we need to get our supply chain back especially you see it right now you know ford's cutting uh the production of their cars uh, we can't get the computer chips because they're made in uh, taiwan or japan um we see that the chinese middle class and i've saw it i i, was, I lived it uh from 2004 to now the middle class exploded they're owning houses and cars and send their kids to college with and have savings and having good jobs and you know this is because those manufacturing jobs those living wage jobs have gone away from america so let's get those back. I've seen it benefit, the benefits of, of real good paying, you know, a living wage worker, blue collar jobs, and which is not a negative, bring them back to the U.S. And again, what we need to do is also promote the trades and, and respect them. Have them. Let them make the trades sexy again, man. Like that is so important to me. Look, I'm a high school dropout. I just told you that I got a, I'm fluent in Chinese. I went to university, got my bachelor's degree. I got a full scholarship for my MBA. Um, I got a scholarship to study Chinese. Uh, I'm not a slouch. I'm not a not 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 a hard worker, but I'm also a high school dropout. You wonder why I want to drop out because I want to be a chef. I just want to go and work and just try to learn a skill and a trade. And everybody told me I will never be amount to anything because I didn't graduate. I didn't go to school. I'm not going to college. And what a crappy thing to do to somebody to say yeah. that if you're not going to amount to anything, if you just work bullshit. Go out and do it. Go out and be an electrician, a carpenter, be a small business entrepreneur, be a hairdresser. I don't care what you do. Open a gym. Show them dignity and respect because they're part of your community. They're working hard as well, and they have a skill that they could teach you. And, of course, they can come help, and they are part of this whole bigger system. I want to make sure I'm going to Congress to make sure that you know we respect the trades, respect uh, the dignity of, of work and hard work and entrepreneurship here in the, in the U.S. And put the trades back into high school, financial ed education. Make sure that people can you know, um, understand how to manage their, they manage their, their, their money so, so they don't either not go into debt or leverage their capital and, and, and so on and so forth so they can help build wealth you know, throughout time. And you know what? You, you start out with this question is, why am I going to – why do I want to go to Congress? And the fact is, is somebody has to do it, man. 
Somebody has to do it. And I just want to make sure that I get in front of enough people to say that and, and convince people to say, hey, this dude's real. He's not bullshitting. He actually wants to do the work. He actually is a hard worker and he, and he can, can do the work. And let's actually do things in Washington that helps the average person, the, 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 us, man, <laughs> us, our families, yeah. the families that we came from. And so once we start picking the people to go to Washington to that are that will represent that and can get that done, then I think we will actually see change. But right now, what we're doing is picking people on face value alone, on, on, on their resume, who they know, how much money they could raise in their campaign. Yep. Um, and, 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 and honestly, and we keep getting the same results in Washington. It keeps whittling away our wealth as middle class people, as, as workers. And, you know, we're not getting any re results. So I'm going because we really do need change, man. You mentioned financial literacy and um, the public, edu public education system, in my opinion, does not teach basic fundamental financial literacy. It's I don't know. They teach really basic ashamed. fundamental anything, man. <laughs> right. It's like most Americans, they seem to blame the other party for the problems or the woes. They don't they'll say, oh, it's because of Trump. Oh, it's because of Obama. Oh, it's because of Bush. Oh, it's because of Clinton. It's like they always blame the president. Like the president's really has anything to do with it. It really is the Federal Reserve. And that's what people don't realize. It's interest rates, right? Um, the old saying on Wall Street is don't fight the Fed. You never hear people say, don't fight the president. <laughs> not in the, not with the people who have the real money, like the, you know, and I'm talking about Wall Street, you know. Um, I don't think people understand that interest rates is what drives most of the economic conditions in this country and the policies of the Fed. Obviously, you know, they're passing stimulus packages and stuff at the Congress level. Yeah, okay, I, I, okay, we can get into that. <laughs> um, but what are your views on this? Like, how would you change it? Uh, how would you change or would you propose to not that you can actually do it? You have to get lobby it, right? As you you know, find out, it's very difficult to make changes that you want, right? You got to get people to support it within Congress. What do you want to do for financial literacy? The first thing I want to do is, is I want to make sure that we, the middle class and the average person has the same tools as rich people. And what, what does that mean? It means like things like Robin Hood, look, like it or hate it, Robin Hood gave the retail person, the mom and pop, the ability to buy stocks, right? And that's an amazing thing. Before you had to call your bank, pay $35 for them to do it. You had to look at the newspaper. You didn't have, you couldn't invest yourself because you weren't an accredited investor with, you know, a certain amount level of wealth or income. And so like you just didn't have that ability to, you know, invest into the things that the rich people are investing in, to be honest with you, and using your money that way. But these different, um, you know, retail uh, tools and products, financial products, gave the average person the ability to, you know, buy and hold one share of Tesla a half a share of Tesla, um, put $25 a month or a week into, you know, uh, index fund or, you know, what have you. Um, and so I, I just want to make sure that first that, that we have the, the tools available to everyone that the same, that have the same, uh, tools for, for rich people. And, and let me just expand on that a little bit more over here in the place I just told you I grew up in is it's called Slavic village. The average home or the median home price in Slavic village is $39,000, $39,000. Okay. There are people that pay or that are paying a mortgage on that $39,000. They came up with maybe a couple grand to put down. They are paying off their, their mortgage every, every month, like everybody else, who knows if it's a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or 300 bucks for a $39,000 house, but they are building that equity. But because it's a, you know, a lower income neighborhood, because it's a lower, lower priced house, they don't have the ability to leverage that equity like somebody else with a half a million or a million dollar house. That is absolutely not fair. Fair. What could that equity that they're putting into be used for? It could be used for uh, home repair to increase their value. It could be used for education. It could be used for a startup to be an entrepreneur. It could be used for so many different things. But it's like 
first, let's make sure that the products are there uh, for everybody to take advantage of the money that they have and the wealth that they're building and use it and deploy it in a way that can benefit them, just like the, the millionaire does. Please don't do that. <laughs> please don't. Please don't do that. No, but uh, I, I do want to make sure that these products are available for the average person. You know, one thing I never understood is the accredited investor rule, right? It's been around since I think 1933 and the, the act that they passed a long time ago, which is uh, if you don't have a million dollar net worth or make between, I think, two or $300,000 a year, depending on if you're single or married, you can't participate in what we now call the pre-IPO market, which they right. used to just be called private companies, right? Um, you're not allowed to invest. All of a sudden, you have a million dollars. You scratch off a lottery ticket. All of a sudden, they say, "Well, you're smart enough to invest." It's like they just look right. at your name. They don't look. They don't give you a test. It's not like, "Please take this test to see how smart you are financially." Nope. Oh, you have money. You must automatically be smart. I, I never understood this rule. Like you're protecting people from themselves. Who are you to say whether or not they have the financial acumen to make these investments? What do you think about that that accredited investor rule? You know, again, I think, again, it's, uh, what I just said is, is, you know, expanding these products over to the average person. Uh, how do we assess that somebody isn't going to, um, uh, you know, lose all of their money because they're investing in YOLO on GameStop or Dogecoin or whatever? I don't want to be the person that says that they can't because, you know, I'm, I'm the person that says, like, it's, it's your money. You know, again, we, we're so, so, so hypocritical in, in this country. You can, like you just said, scratch a lotto ticket. You can do that all day long. You can go down to Jack's Casino down here in, in, spend in all uh, your Cleveland money. Right. and spend all your money. You can drink it away. You can, you know, but but for some reason, when it comes to trying to build wealth with these financial products, we have all these barriers for people. I agree. I agree. Um so let's talk about your, you mentioned fundraising, right? Let's talk about your fundraising efforts right now. Um, so you're obviously running for Congress. How much have you raised so far in your campaign? How much crypto in particular have you raised? It's interesting on your website, you're taking crypto. I think it's great by the way, but I'm just curious, are people actually spending their Bitcoin or Litecoin or anything like that? Are you getting donations? If so, roughly about how much, uh, where are you at in the polls right now? Um, and also how much has your competitor raised uh, so far uh, during this campaign? Well, so let me see. We raised probably about eighty grand. Uh, it's just my, it's just grassroots. I, I make three hours of phone calls every day, random people sure. telling about myself and telling about the campaign. Um, in crypto, we've probably raised about a thousand dollars. That is not that's in crypto, but uh, when it comes to the crypto space, uh, they've been pretty uh, supportive. So people I've known in the space, uh, they've probably sent maybe fifteen thousand dollars. People who've worked in the space and and donated to the campaign. Um, the competitors, they have raised a crap ton. Of course, we have the incumbent who is, um, who's, uh, you know, an incumbent. So he could, of course, raise, and he's probably raised a million dollars so far. Uh, there's the um, Trump-backed uh, candidate uh, who's probably raised a million dollars so far. So far, I'm the I'm running as a Democrat. There's all, I'm the only Democrat in the race. Uh, so um, I'm I'm just you know trying to you know David and Goliath sort of thing. Uh, what? How much do we need? We need two million dollars. Where is that money going to come from? Well, it's going to come from hard work. It's going to come from the people in the crypto space that see that. Look, I, I also want to say that we always support these people in the crypto space because they put hashtag Bitcoin in their in their bio in their Twitter bio. Uh, but but look, we have to look at the look at people. I've held my my keys for for years. All right, uh, my my. Bitcoin That's right. You're cold storage, uh, right? You 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 hold your own. Yeah. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I've been educating in this space for five years with different podcasts from Crypto One One. I have my daily news show, show right now called the Decrypt Daily. Um, I've done other shows and produced other shows in in between those two shows for other people in the crypto space. And so you know, I, I just think that that one we have to if we want to further this industry we have to get people that actually you know uh commit to this industry and this emerging technology but regardless going back to uh fundraising is yeah you know we we're we're still 
we are not the top fundraisers, 100%, but that does not mean that we're not going to put the work in. That doesn't mean that we don't have the message to, to get out there and doesn't mean that, um, you know, uh, and, and this goes back to our, our conversation before about what do we look like on paper. So what do you, how, how are you faring in the polls, though, in, in the process so far? How does it look? Well, um, we're, we're the the election is not until 2022. Again, yeah. I'm the only I'm the only Democrat in the race, so looking pretty good for me until we get to the general, and then they have to. There's three people slugging it out on the Republican side, so so let's just see. What has been the one big surprise that you have noticed as a candidate running for Congress? I can imagine there's a bunch of them, but what is the one thing that you're like, I just I just can't believe that. Free thought is very looked down upon. I don't want to go on record to say this, but I'm going to go on record to say this: is that there are there are there are t- talking points that you need to stick with. You know, like within the party, you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, I've been called a Republican uh, on numerous occasions because uh, I think that we should lower capital gains tax on the average person, on the average, uh, on the average income, because I want to encourage the, uh, like I just said, the middle class people to start investing into the stock market. But if you're only investing, say, a thousand dollars into the stock market, because that's all you have, that's all you can muster, and you're looking at doubling your money, but you're going to tax that one thousand dollars and doubling your money because if you say the S and P five hundred, what's the um, the growth rate of that? Anywhere from a ten to twelve uh, percent uh, annually. Yeah. So look, you have that thousand dollars in there, and you want to keep growing it. By the time you have a thousand dollars in profits, it's ten. It's eight years later, you know, and then you're going to tax you know twenty percent, twenty three percent on top of that for long term cap gains. It's like well, like let's encourage the average person to invest into our economy. Yeah. Let them get ahead. And so people call it. That should be the tagline. Let them get ahead. <laughs> let, let them, please. And let's, again, let's t- teach finances in schools. But, you know, I've been called a Republican uh, for even mentioning that. Um, and I don't like fighting the traditional talking points without, you know, really thinking about real solutions for real people. And so that's one thing that surprised me is like if you say lower taxes, you're a Republican. But I'm late. Wait, wait, wait. I'm lowering taxes on the middle class, the working class. This is what the Democrats should be are, are supposedly standing for. So that's what really surprised me. All right. Let's talk about Bitcoin. I, mean, I think I, I think I heard your first what you said earlier, which is your aha moment with you with your son. So we don't have to ask you that question. It's a typical question I ask. But when did you first learn about Bitcoin? You must have known about it prior to that. So what was your first and um, when were you first introduced to it, I guess? Uh, my first introduction to Bitcoin was in 2013 by the a podcast called uh, Stuff You Should Know. And uh, they're just talking about stuff you should know. What is Bitcoin? And it was that my, my son was born many years before that. So it was like th- 2013 was like, oh, this is how that works. I can apply it to this. Um, and that's how it could have been. Uh, it. A, you put the exactly, together. exactly. Yeah. I didn't get back into Bitcoin until like 2016. I, and I, I tell the story quite a bit. It was my bartender. I was uh, the GM of, of, of a venue at one, one time and the bar manager, man, he was out messing around somewhere. He, I, I could see him walking out the back, the, the, the back somewhere, you know, and, he, and with a big ass grin on his face. I was like, bro, it's like a Friday night. Get behind the bar. What are you doing, man? He's like, oh, I was, I was, I was sending money to this random dude in Guangzhou to buy Bitcoin. And he sent me back Bitcoin to my wallet because in China, that's how you did it. You sent them, uh, you know, sent them like a PayPal, let's call it, but it's, it's WeChat, but PayPal them, you know, some money and then they sent you Bitcoin back. And so I'm like, bro, stop, stop messing around. But then like the the days after that, I was like, uh, I just started talking to him and he started telling me about Bitcoin. He started talking about the price and, you know, whatever. And I started going down the rabbit hole. And then um, in uh, the summer of 2017 is when I started my podcast called Crypto 101, uh, which was educating people how to get into Bitcoin. Because from January 
or the end of 2016 to, to that time when I stopped their podcast, you know, you had to go through like the whole motions yourself. It's like, what does HODL mean? What does rect mean? What is a make or taker fee? What is, you know, slippage? What is, you know, you just try to figure out how to buy and sell and set up your wallet in this Coinbase safe. Should they asking for a lot of information, you know, over here? Like, do I really give them all this information? And who are these guys? Who are these guys asking for like pictures of my ID plus a picture of me holding my ID? Like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to give you that. But, you know, but if you want to be involved with this, you do have to do the KYC and AML and just have that on ramp as, a, a, you know, an American. Yeah. So, you know, I just wanted to make a show that um, went down the rabbit hole pretty deep and um, gave people confidence to get into it. And that show got up to about 100,000 uh, listeners per episode. And, you know, it was, it was successful. And I onboarded, you know, thousands of people into cryptocurrency because of that. What percentage of your net worth is in crypto and in particular for Bitcoin? Like, what would you have to add it up? What percentage would you say it is? <laughs> Embarrassingly a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. <laughs> Embarrassingly a lot. Look, and this is another thing I want everybody to really look at is anybody who runs for Congress or is in Congress has to do an ethics disclosure report. And so yeah. um, all of everything that they have is on there. So again, if you are looking at Congress people or people running for Congress, and you know, you do put yourself out there a little bit. And this is honestly, it, it was probably the scariest point about running for Congress is to do this ethics disclosure mm -hmm. because you are literally telling everybody everything you hodl. It's crazy. <laughs> and it, it is, man. And I can see why people don't want to do this. But again, it's, it, I'm doing it and we're doing it. But if, if you do see people that are saying that we are supporting Bitcoin, we hodl Bitcoin or we are an advocate for the crypto space, look at their disclosure and actually see if they do hodl and what they do hodl. Like you, you would be surprised how many people just bought grayscale Bitcoin trusts. They don't hold Bitcoin, but they just hold Bitcoin trust. Yeah. But they still say I'm a proponent of Bitcoin. But you don't hold your keys. Are you really? Um, and I, I mean, fine, you're talking about financial products, but let's, let's, let's define this. Who are these people and when did they buy? When did they huddle? When did they get into it? Or is it just a hashtag to rally up the crypto community to try to get some Bitcoins? Well, that's why I asked the percentage and I asked most people on the show the percentage, Matthew, because I'm curious, like how much conviction have they had? And a lot of times it may have been a smaller percentage because you got in 2016, but it's growing because the asset value is going up, you know? No, man, it's just embarrassing. And that's why I'm not going to tell you a percentage, but you can, you can look and just see, and, and say, and see like, man, you're really over leveraged, aren't you? <laughs> I got I got to go Google this shit. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> All right. Um, but you own you own altcoins, as we call it in the Bitcoin world, shitcoins. So tell me why. Why do you still believe? Because you seem like you're very educated about the space. What what makes you still? Do you think that it might fail Bitcoin? Like, what's the reason to own the others? And I do know that they outperform Bitcoin during bull runs, but over a four or five year period, they never have. So what what, what is your views on the altcoin market? Look, I, I think that Bitcoin. My analogy for Bitcoin is is Bitcoin is like Superman, and I I, I love I love that uh, we're having this whole discussion about regulations of Bitcoin. And, and I, again, another soapbox I'm gonna get on. And um, do did you watch Man of Steel? Uh, you remember Man of Steel? I think it was Henry Cavill, mm -hmm. and he's walking through the police station, yeah. and he has handcuffs on, right? Right. And Lois Lane's asking him, he's like, "Why'd you allow them to handcuff you?" And he's like, "It makes them feel comfortable," right? <laughs> And, and the thing is, it, we all know that he could break those handcuffs and fly through the ceiling and fly away. Nobody can stop Superman. But and that's what that's how I feel with Bitcoin and regulations. It's like we keep saying like, oh, no, they're going to regulate Bitcoin. It's like, who cares? Who cares? Fine. Slap the regulations on the bank. Slap it on Coinbase. Slap this. But if you hold your private keys, you have always an ability to break the handcuffs and fly away. There's this other part in, in Superman where it says where Lois Lane was sitting across from uh, Superman um, and asked, what does the S on your chest mean? And he's like. It's not an S. In my home world, it's, it's a symbol for hope. So if Bitcoin is not Superman, you gotta tell me, what, what is it? And so I look at Bitcoin as one aspect. If things go 
south when it comes to inflation, when it comes to the stability of our, our, our economy or whatever. Bitcoin is a great, is, in my opinion, a great solution because we can break those handcuffs. We can go P2P. We can have some semblance of, you know, a society that can do commerce with each other. But also my blockchain uh, technology, I love blockchain tech. I think voting on the blockchain is one of those things that we need to implement now. People say that it's a hard thing to do. Is it possible? But no, man, it isn't. It is the perfect use case for, for voting. We have the Republicans uh, on one side saying that the, it was, it was, um, the, the election was stolen. It was rigged. You know, Biden's not, Biden wasn't, you know, it was whatever. Uh, we also have, you know, lack of transparency. People saying, like, how are these votes getting counted? Who's counting them? Where did my vote go? Was my vote thrown away? Was my ballot throw, thrown away? All that stops with blockchain technology and you can have use um zero proof zero proof um zk snarks or you know zero knowledge proofs to make it uh, anonymous you can still have very 100 confidence that these votes are getting counted you can track your vote to see how it's uh, being counted and you can you can just go backwards and always audit whenever anybody you could have an open source you could have any dude that wants to download the blockchain audit the election re results and we can have total and they will, and they'll have total confidence. Why are we having, having this roll out right now? Because we don't want to. All right, Matthew, what are your thoughts on the NFT craze that's happening right before our eyes right now? Uh, I don't know what to think. Uh, I think that the NFTs are amazing. I think that they, I think NFTs in general are amazing because you could tokenize and have a digital, uh, you know, a unique representation of something. Um, I think that it's going to revolutionize collectors uh, in the way to collect when it comes to sports cards or, you know, even art. We saw Banksy is now getting turned over to NFTs. What do I think about the art uh, being produced right now and the whole, you know, value of that in the craze? I have no clue what to think. I just want to see it play out. So I have honestly no opinion. All right, let me ask you this one. SEC's position on Bitcoin versus what they're saying, Bitcoin and Ethereum versus what they're saying about all the other altcoins. Um, Genzer came out and said that he considers uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum essentially to be uh, property and the others, they should be considered securities. Obviously, that's going to be an issue for them because he's probably going to be going after them at some point. He's kind of signaling to the market what they're likely to do. What do you think about that? Um, I think that uh, this is why we need to get people into Congress that understand it so we can help, you know, start lobbying and, you know, you know, pushing the needle in certain ways and, and making actually re regulations from a congressional level to make sure that we're in, you know, um, pushing forth innovation, emerging tech and entrepreneurs and helping them, you know, create and build. Um, I think that we just need to get more people into Congress that get it. And, and again, I'm going to ask your views on um, most of the recent bill that was passed that um, uh, by Congress that was heavily opposing, opposed rather by the Bitcoin community, as you probably are well aware, um, that that it really proposes a lot of strict oversight and surveillance, I guess, on Bitcoin at the exchange level uh, for the on-ramps and the off-ramps. Um, what is your view on that proposal that the Congress folks were actually a lot of people in your party as well kind of proposing um to do these things and uh and then obviously the bitcoin community came back they lobbied in, in a little bit of a way um and we're saying that you know, we'd like to change it this way that way and they say no we're done we're, we're just passing this like well, what, what do you feel about that well i think it's just a like, shows you how the legislative process is broken first of all it was thrown in there haphazardly um nobody <laughs> understands uh how bitcoin works or binding works and what how do we define a broker broker and what brokerage means i mean so that was just you know a haphazard from everybody who voted yes on that. Um, the other thing is, and I think it's just uh, uh, another way to bamboozle the American people that they're going to pay for something. If you don't know how you're going to take the money, you don't say that you're going to earmark $28 billion of additional tax revenue to pay for something, um, but you actually don't understand the thing that you're trying to tax. 
Uh, so I, and then if you don't know how to tax it and you actually can't get those funds or these miners move out of the country and you can't get, uh, you know, these t tax tax the miners because they already left because you destroyed the mining industry in the United States. Uh, don't think they're going to get 20 billion dollars from that to support this bill that you're passing. I just think it was um, one um, haphazard. I think it was uneducated. And I think that um, it was just bamboozing the, the middle class, the average person again of saying that we're going to pay for this and they actually don't know how. I hope you. I hope you get in because we need people that are thinking like this. And I also want to get you in so that I can bring you back on the show. Everyone, like, what the hell are these guys saying? <laughs> what is happening? Do they even know what they're talking about? Like when you're in private meetings, like I think they're just like, what am I supposed to vote on? Tell me what to do. I don't know. You know, they don't half of it. They don't even. I don't think they read it. They don't understand. You know. But anyway, let's move on. Um, the SEC has not ruled on the Bitcoin ETF. Canada has, as you can see, right? Um, what are your thoughts on a Bitcoin ETF? I'm imagining you think there should be ETFs for this stuff, but why is it not happening? Like, what's going on here? I'm, I, I don't know, uh, but again, they're punting the ball. They keep punting the ball. The Van Eck ETF was just now punted all the way to November 17th, I think it is, or 14th, somewhere around there. Um, look, they've been applying for Bitcoin ETFs for for years already uh, the fact that we don't have clear guidance and frameworks is again this is just you know the the this is from the problems with, with government and congress in general you know so it's like look we still don't understand how to regulate or look at the first amendment and freedom of speech when it comes to social media networks you know and we've already seen um and we don't even know how what it means to um what, what does it mean for your data what, what ownership do you have over your personal data that you generate for these companies even though we had cambridge analytica you know so yeah. it's like we have not even been able to answer questions that we've been asking for a decade, yet we're trying to do this with emerging technology. Um, I just think it's failure, the failure of Congress. And I think that every uh, regulatory branch right now just uh, hands off and punts the ball down the field and gives it off to some other branch because they don't want the responsibility to actually make decisions and have conversations. Matthew, what do you think of the companies like BlockFi and others that have these lending products? We saw what happened just the other day with um, Coinbase and the SEC, which blows my mind. They're sitting here having discussions behind closed doors about what do you want us to do to be compliant? And then they just back out and say, no, we're just going after these guys. Or, you know, rhetoric that's very strong. It seems the SEC is going to come after folks uh, on this topic. What, what are your views on that in terms of the lending um, products? Um, my views on that is I think we should be asking the question of what are, we, what are my views or what are we thinking about um, your bank account, your savings account only paying you 0.03% interest and, and opposed to something that's actual, um, you know, that actually can keep up with inflation, even though they're taking your money and lending it out to uh, over and over and over and over again. Um, so I think that's the question that we should be asking. And now finally, somebody comes out to pay interest on some money that they are holding and putting to work for you. And we're, we're, we're going, well, this doesn't seem right. Uh, no, that actually seems like you're, the way this is supposed to work. Uh, so that's my that's my uh, the way I'm approaching this. All right, last question: What is your 10 year price prediction for Bitcoin? I don't make price predictions. <laughs> I have never have, and I and I never will. I, all I can say is that uh, Plan B's uh, stock to flow looks like it's holding pretty well. Um, I would just look at what he says and see if it keeps matching up. If it keeps matching up, there's no reason to try to reinvent the wheel. Thank you for coming on the show. I truly appreciate your time today. Um, I wish you the best of luck on your campaign. Um, Matthew Deemer running for Congress in Ohio. Matthew, thank you again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. My name is Matthew Deemer. But before we go, I want to tell you about Superbid.io. Superbid.io launched their long-awaited product today, Wednesday, September 22nd. Multiple auctions were made available only on day one. So go to superbid.io, check them out, including those from social media personality and boxer Logan Paul. There's also more influencers on there that they have teamed with 
to make NFTs on this marketplace. NFTs on Superbid don't just end with the digital offerings. Some of these auctions are tied to tickets for in-person experiences and real-life items. So check it out. You'll find much more diversity and tangibility in Superbid's NFTs when compared to other common platforms such as OpenSea and Rarible. So Superbid.io. Check it out. I'll see you tomorrow. Happy hodling, everyone.